0: Earnings, very strong numbers coming out of Target and Lowe's today, helping push uh, the market up close to uh, 1%. Let's get a breakdown on these earnings and all things retail to do that. Nobody better to talk to than Dana Telsey. Uh, Dana is the CEO and founder of Telsey Advisory Group based in New York. Dana, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with those uh, earnings that we've got today. Target and Lowe's blockbuster numbers, stocks really popping. Give us your takeaways.
2: I think overall what you're seeing is value and convenience is working. When you see things in open-air centers, they definitely are gaining the traffic and gaining share. When you think about both Target and Lowe's, the numbers certainly came in a little bit better than expected. I mean, the better-than-expected same-store sales at Target was very impressive. Keep in mind that comp of 3.4%, better than the the consensus number at just around 3%, and with traffic up 2.4%. That certainly is, is very, super impressive, and it comes from the merchandise assortment that they've had, the price investment that they've made, the new private brands and remodeling stores. And then you see Lowe's also, they maintained their guidance but delivered a beat on the second quarter, and their US, comp point, their U.S. comp of 3.2% was quite solid. It basically mirrored and came in slightly better than Home Depot's U.S. comp of 3.1%. So I think overall, these big companies have been able to integrate, certainly, omni-channel initiatives. They're using buy online, pick up in store. The product assortment and price investments are working, and they're delivering on the gross margin. A big difference than what we've seen in some of the apparel companies, we've seen gross margin headwinds in apparel companies. We've seen gross margin improvement at some of the discounters and home retailers.
1: Dana, it's interesting to me to see how people are viewing these earnings in in light of the U.S. economy. In other words, people looking at Target, Walmart, and Lowe's and saying, look, they beat. The consumer is strong. And on the flip side, these are traditionally discount stores. And Lowe's, not a discount store, but people usually renovate rather than move if they don't want to make an investment in buying a home. Uh, So how are you viewing the beats uh, in terms of that broader perspective?
2: I think overall, when I think about the U.S. consumer, what it tells me is that the consumer is healthy. When I have traffic gains, like up 2.4% in traffic gains at Walmart, that's encouraging. It wasn't done just on price alone. It was done on more consumers walking in the door. When I think about what I'm seeing in apparel, it's a different world in apparel. The headwinds of tariffs are definitely going to be an issue. And you had Macy's CEO who basically said that trying to pass on some of the price increases The consumer won't accept the price increases. There's needs and there's wants. I think both the home improvement retailers, the discounters, are more need-based retailers. I think apparel retailers are more want-based retailers. And certainly in apparel, given that you've had a consolidation of wearing occasions, work, weekend, gym, and going to a party, work, weekend, and gym are all one. You can basically get more value for your money in in apparel in different places today than what you have in the past because you don't need to buy as many different outfits. So you better get it right in order to make the difference.
0: So Dana, give us a sense. Just uh, you've covered the broad retail space for such a long time. You've got your finger on the pulse of it. You know one of the concerns out there that I hear from investors is that the U.S. Despite all the store closings that we've seen, whether it's Toys R Us or whatever, the U.S. is still way overstored. Can you give us your thoughts on that?
2: I think overall, when you're thinking about stores today, I think we do have a smaller store base that's required for retailers than you had in the past. It's got to be the right stores, and it's got to be the right centers. And you're seeing transformations happen. I call it reinvention for relevancy. And I think you're seeing experiential factors being placed in shopping centers. It's being placed in retailers, too, in order to create that destination. And whether it's food, whether it's events, you're seeing every type of retailer in order to connect to their customer. You have to innovate, you need to offer speed, and you need to learn from the data of what to offer them. So when I think about the number of stores, you're not seeing as many stores open. You're not seeing as many shopping centers open. Reinvesting in both the center and the store is required to stay relevant.
1: Dana, it's so interesting when you talk about investing, it really highlights how companies that have money and that have scope have such an advantage right now over those that are struggling under the load of uh, big debts or or, or just a a lack of cash. Right. And so you're seeing sort of a tale uh, of two cities within the retail space. But I have to wonder. Size, is it a benefit or a detractor? Because people were talking about how department stores are trying to be everything to all people and that became a problem. On the other hand, Walmart and Target are doing well because they are able to sort of leverage all these different aspects of their businesses and provide a holistic uh, kind of you know uh, role for, for the consumer. I'm just wondering, where, when is size good and when is it not?
2: I think it, what, whether you're big or whether you're small, if you don't have an innovative product, It won't drive demand. When you think of what's happening with the apparel companies, the apparel companies' brands, whether it's Levi's reinvented themselves, we can look at companies like what VF is doing with North Face, with Vans, which has been the collaborations they've had, which has been so compelling. You're taking a look at companies that are in the midst of transformation, like Tiffany's, who is upgrading their business. While you're having Target and Walmart, look at big, bought, small. Target, I mean, Walmart has bought many smaller companies in order to be able to enhance their speed to identify omni-channel and integrate omni-channel into their business. Look what Greg Ferran at Walmart did with their U.S. stores. I think investing isn't isn't a just nice to do. It's a must do. And I'd rather be small and more profitable if you're investing and you're making yourself essential to the consumer rather than just have size for size sake. Scale matters as long as you can drop profits to the bottom line.
0: So, Dana, has Retail America, have they weathered the Amazon storm? I look at Target, they had their, their digital sales are up 34%, kind of really strong digital uh, sales at Walmart as well. Has, has Retail America kind of weathered that initial onslaught by Amazon over the last dozen years or so?
2: I think they have. I think, if anything, we've seen every company turn themselves inside out and basically having Amazon taught them that, We need to make the best better, and make the best better whether it's data, whether it's logistics, whether it's supply chain. There's speed to markets getting faster, and look at today. Whatever goes down the runway today should be able to be bought in the same time. So I think that the pace of newness is faster than it's ever been before.
1: Dana Telsey, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Dana Telsey, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Research Officer at Telsey Advisory Group, Greenland, who should own Greenland? President Trump says that he would like to buy Greenland. Danish Prime, Danish Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen uh, spoke on this issue at a uh, press conference at 9 Eastern, uh, talking about Trump and Greenland. She was speaking in Copenhagen. Listen to what she has to say. A discussion uh, has, however, been raised, raised about uh, a potential sale of Greenland. Um, this has clearly been rejected Uh, by Kim Kielsen, a position that I share, of course. Uh, This uh, does not change uh, the character of our good relations. Well, perhaps it doesn't change the character of uh, the good relations between uh, what's going on there and the U.S., but President Trump decided to cancel or reschedule a meeting with the Prime Minister due to the issue over Greenland. Here to give us a sense of what this all is about, Morton Butler, political reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from Copenhagen in Denmark. Morton, why is this even a debate right now? Why are we talking about Greenland?
3: Well, Greenland um, it's got a prominent role in um, international politics right now. Arctics uh, the Arctics um, are really dominant uh, in both Russian politics Chinese politics u s politics and of course in the Nordic region as well, because there are massive um, resources up there, natural gas and oil and sorts, and um, a very important trade route um, uh, by sea is is opening up up there so um, so this area really um, compiles a lot of attention right now uh, all over the globe basically.
0: Yeah, but it, it, what what gave President Trump the idea that this was actually for sale?
3: Well, I mean, he's not the first American president to try to purchase this uh, particular island. Uh, Truman uh, made um, similar um, efforts in '46, uh, I believe it was. Um, I suppose um, with the upcoming trip to uh, to uh, to Denmark uh, and with Greenland in, in the center of attention for that trip. Perhaps this seems to be um, an idea that has um, has emerged somehow in um, in the White House.
1: OK, so Morton, I guess that then there's a question of let's put aside the idea that Denmark's going to sell its stake in Greenland and just talk about the strategic role of Greenland. Is there a sense that Denmark is establishing closer ties with, say, uh, rivals of the United States in, over uh, America in terms of giving sort of a strategic upper hand uh, with the resources you were talking about?
3: No, on the contrary, actually, uh, China a few years back made efforts, I think actually last year, made efforts to uh, invest in uh, infrastructure, critical uh, airport um, infrastructure in Greenland. Denmark, um, I don't know if it's a courtesy to the U.S. because Denmark also had interest in this uh, particular move, but decided to co-fund airports uh, in Greenland instead of um, letting China pitch in on this. So so this is just one of many examples of Denmark uh, trying to um, sort of allow uh, U.S. to play a role in, in Greenland uh, domestic uh, and international politics up there, but also Denmark trying to keep other players out of Greenland, of which, I mean, Greenland has an extensive home rule, but Denmark has a final say in uh, security, defense, and international affairs.
0: So, Morten, you're in Copenhagen right now. What's the sense on the street in Copenhagen, the uh, the folks in Denmark, what do they think about this issue?
3: Well, um, I think most people, and you could tell by the Twitter reaction this morning, uh, because obviously Trump uh, tweeted last night um, a local U.S. time, uh, which was in the middle of the night here in Denmark. Uh, so most people woke up to sort of a, a big surprise that this um, visit, who remember not only to visit the prime minister, but also to w- visit the queen of Denmark, Um, was uh, like a big surprise to a lot of people. Remarks on Twitter saying, like sort of uh, dismay, saying that it's uh, uncomprehensible, that it's um, disrespectful. Some are even talking about a potential diplomatic crisis between Denmark and the U.S. And remember, Denmark is not just any Scandinavian or or European country here. Denmark is a founding member of NATO, is a um, U.S. ally in the Iraq war. Um, Long... Standing trading partner, um, as the US is Denmark's second biggest export nation, so there are strong ties between the two countries uh, historically. So, so this of course took a lot of Danes by surprise.
1: Morten, it took a lot of people by surprise. I mean. Let's just be completely honest and call a spade a spade. I mean, when this happened, I think a lot of people just shrugged and said, Greenland? Like, I mean, why, why, why are we even talking about this now? And, and when, you know, with the sale, et cetera, it just seems a little bit out of left field. Are there any ways to explain this, uh, you know, perhaps under the cover or just something, some other motivation that could be behind this that we're not really understanding?
3: Uh, from a Danish perspective, um, I haven't heard any other... Uh, speculation than the fact that this, of course, would be a central part of the, the meeting between PM Fredrickson and, and uh, Greenland PM Kim Kielsen, and of course Donald Trump. Um, uh, obviously, when this is supposed to be um, on the table at a meeting, the president gets some sort of of, uh, of intel in advance, gets some meeting preparations, and and I mean, this seems to be the situation where uh, the president then um decided to to um to to talk about uh, potentially purchasing greenland this is not something that has been mentioned in danish media or uh, in the local media on greenland recently recently so this took a lot of people by surprise when it was initially reported last week um and it was also debated when the, the danish prime minister frederiksen actually went to greenland uh, on other um assignment on sunday so um so this was uh, clearly coming as a surprise as yeah. well for the for the danish pm
0: Interesting. A lot of, as Lisa mentioned, a surprise to a lot of people uh, in around the world, I think. Uh, that Morton Butler, political reporter for Bloomberg News, thank you so much for joining us and giving us some local color. Uh, Morgan's uh, based in Copenhagen, Denmark, so giving us a sense that it was certainly this discussion about the U.S. possibly purchasing uh, Greenland came certainly as a surprise uh, to the Danes, uh, who woke up to the tweets this morning from President Trump about Greenland.
1: Hundred eighty one chief executive officers gathered together and discussed their role in this world. Their result was that we have a purpose beyond just that of shareholders. Joining us now to discuss Brian Stafford, CEO of Diligent. Uh, He also is the co-author of Corporate Governance in the Digital Age. Uh, So, Brian, uh, let's just start there. What did you make of this sort of, uh, I guess, resolution coming out of the business roundtable that had uh, signatories such as... BlackRock's Larry Fink, as well as J.P. Morgan's uh, Jamie Dimon.
4: Yeah, super interesting um, uh, conclusion coming out of the business roundtable. I guess not uh, unexpected in the grand scheme of things. Larry Fink uh, has been writing about this for a while. State Street as well, that uh, the expectation should be for business leaders to actually serve a broader purpose rather than just profits and only profits. And it is a realization that other stakeholders matter. And that if you really take a long-term interest in, um, in the role that your business plays in communities in the, um, uh, and with your employees, it's actually, it's actually good for business. So one of the
0: issues, some of the pushback that I've read is that if some of these CEOs were so concerned about the uh, inequality um, in income, uh, wouldn't it be better for them to raise wages for their employees and maybe lower executive pay?
4: Well, I mean, you, you do see this in many places with some companies actually raising kind of um, the average um, uh, income level or the average wage of entry-level employees. So I think you will see more of that. Um, uh, of course, Walmart did that uh, a few years ago, and you saw actually an increase in uh, in the net promoter scores of, of Walmart stores because actually people were happier, treated customers in a better way, and that should translate into ideally customers uh, buying more. So you will see that. I think the interesting challenge that ends up being that actually hasn't really been reported in this is you know the average tenure for a board director is close to eight years of a public company but the average tenure for a ceo is only five years and so i think the reason why that's important is the board can take a longer term view of governance and the corporation existing over a longer period of time i think it can be challenging for the individual ceo who typically has a shorter time horizon or window to not focus more on profit and, and change the focus more on broader stakeholders. And I think that's a little bit of the shift that you've seen, uh, the business roundtable, which end up being unbelievably tenured CEOs kind of steering um, organizations in.
1: You know, Brian, a cynic might say CEOs are doing this as the cycle turns and want to make an excuse for why they may underperform because they're catering to the greater good and not their shareholders. What would you say to that?
4: Uh, I I think it's a fair comment to actually say, you know, how how is the climate evolving and how is the climate changing? And is this in in? uh, is this in response to the changing climate. Um, we do have a rise of populism. You know, it's in every story that we hear kind of on a day-to-day basis on on your program. Uh, and we do have a rise in next generation buyers, um, in uh, Gen Z uh, buyers who actually care more about an organization and its its culture, its sense of good in the world. So I think it is, it is in partial response to the environment that we're in today, which is less of an end of a cycle comment, but more of uh, the different environment that we operate and live in.
0: So the CEO stated that the rising cost of health and, and and all the student uh, debt associated with higher education is certainly a motivation for some of their plans. Do you anticipate corporate America ever trying to
4: tackle meaningfully either of these two issues or both? Uh, you, you know, I, what I see and what, what I thought was an interesting thing to come out of the, the business roundtable was um, actually a slightly different angle on that. And and at Diligent, we recently published a place on on the increasing tone and in conversation around political uncertainty and boards that organizations and corporations are having to deal with. In many cases, which is a a lack of leadership coming from um, countries and uh, CEOs and boards actually having to take more of a leadership role. And so, would I expect leading organizations to take more of a role around societal issues? You brought up student debt, healthcare, et cetera. Um, yes, I think you will see um, uh, CEOs taking and corporations taking an increasing role in that because maybe um, that leadership doesn't exist um, within the public sector.
1: You know, Brian, it's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting. Sort of conflict here. How do you lead? How do you sort of have a role in these debates? Is it sort of a verbal political injection into the conversation, or is it something uh, just leading by example? Right. I mean, so how do you expect these executives to engage beyond just their obligations to their uh, shareholders?
4: Uh, it, it's, it's a great question, and I think you've seen that evolve in the last few years, where. I think CEOs and organizations used to fall into more of a lead by example kind of silent approach. And what you've seen more now, and Jamie Dimon is increasingly vocal about it, um, but actually CEOs having a perspective and a point of view around um, different issues. And you know ultimately, um, organizations, consumers, employees actually follow authentic leaders and also authentic organizations. So an organization taking a stand for something they believe in. You've seen this on um, issues of immigration. You've seen this on increasingly number of issues. So I, I don't think that's going going away. What we hear often from boards is, how does a CEO do it in the right way? <laughs> maybe, maybe not going off on social media, but how do people use the right forum and use their standing to actually have a point of view to be an authentic leader uh, and do it in the right way?
0: So Brian, do you expect to see changes in any executive compensation? I know you know, the big issue. a lot of executive compensation is tied to stock price performance with through options and stock grants. And uh, is that now going and that's tied to shareholder uh, you know, stock price performance? Is that going to be now include maybe ESG scores or employee morale or any other kind of uh, metrics to kind of measure some of these stakeholder issues?
4: Uh, you, you, I think you, you saw a proposal for that even with um, with Uber and their board and, and Dara's compensation being tied to diversity metrics. So I think you're seeing elements of this roll out into CEO compensation, and I would expect that to continue. How much of that is driven by specific CEO targets and how much it is driven by um, uh, the board behind closed doors and maybe with the CEO vocally saying, we care about our environment. We care about the quality of of living um, of our employees. And so how much is specifically tied to compensation versus just comes down the tone and tenor? um, We'll have to see. But you do see it creeping its way into executive compensation.
1: Brian, just real quick here. I'm wondering, do you think that this uh, meeting and sort of the outcome from the business roundtable will actually affect change in any way?
4: I think you've been seeing organizations and the tone of organizations begin to change and focus not just on uh, each individual dollar of profit, but more on the broader set of stakeholders, being customers, being um, the environments we live in, being employees. So I think this was a more formal announcement of it. But like you mentioned, you know, Larry Fink and BlackRock have been talking about this for a while. And you're also as you see a trend in ownership moving away from kind of active managed funds to more index funds in the state streets the world and the Black right. Rocks owning more and more of the stock of these organizations, that ends up having a broader role. So I think we are still in the early innings of that yeah. evolution. How much of it is hard targets versus um, changing in tone, we'll have to see.
0: Brian Stafford, thanks so much for joining us. Brian is the CEO of Diligent. Uh, he is also the co-author of the book, Corporate Governance in the Digital Age. A uh, very interesting discussion on the changing role of CEOs, uh, you know, branching out a little bit more from just uh, returns to shareholders to maybe more for stakeholders.
1: It was the auction heard around the world. Uh, Germany sold 30 year bonds with a coupon of zero an effective yield of negative 11 basis points mind-boggling data uh reaching records the question is who wanted to buy it and it turns out not that many people did joining us now uh, to talk about it marcus ashworth a columnist covering european markets for bloomberg opinion uh, in london marcus thank you so much for being with us first just give us a sense of how lackluster the demand was for this auction
5: well, often uh, German auctions uh, don't uh, get the full allotment. It's a weird thing, seeing how low they are in yield. You think there'll be huge scrambles for them. But it, it's such a tightly controlled market. Uh, the ECB had told us, well, a year and a half ago, that in essence there's only about a 10 or 15% free float. Uh, reality, it's all owned both by the ECB and by other foreign central banks, the majority of uh of German government bonds. Nonetheless, these things trade and they get auctioned on a, a regular schedule. And what the Bundesbank, the German Central Bank, does is it is it takes the rough of the smooth. It, it, it allows them to be not uh, taken up fully. Uh, in July, uh, only 90% was taken down. This time, only 43%. Um, so 820-odd million was sold. Uh, the balance of, uh, not, of one point, nearly 1.2 billion will be taken by the Bundesbank and we'll be drip fed out over the course of the next uh, few years and months, but uh, months and years even. But uh, the reality is, is that everyone had thought this was going to be a challenge because we know this is the first ever globally in the history of mankind that a 30-year bond would have been sold with a zero coupon and, in fact, actually sold below that zero uh, yield level. It would be a struggle. But on a relative value basis, it's actually quite cheap because the 10-year is nearly negative 70 basis points. So the spread between 10s and 30s, as we follow, I'm sure you know, in the States so actively, um, it's something which you're looking on a relative value base, actually, and it had gone below zero yield. The, the previous 30-year uh, Germany had gone below zero yield in the second or third of, of of August and dropped as far as nearly negative 30. So at negative 10, it's almost the bargain, but it's seemingly not.
0: So... It, what does this mean going forward? I mean, is this just a case of investors just saying we're not going to take it anymore? And I mean, is this potentially sign- signaling some higher rates in Germany?
5: Well, I think you should look at it this way. There was a five-year bond sold by a triple-B rated entity called Eon E O N. You can look at it on Bloomberg. It's it's the German utility electricity unit utility. They sold a five-year bond at basically the same. Negative ten, negative fifteen basis points. You know, why on earth would you buy a credit bond triple B at negative fifteen basis points for five years? Is beyond me. And then you compare it to a triple A, the best quality of all in in Europe, German thirty year at actually four basis points more. It almost makes that thirty year look cheap. So you know, this is the choice. Which I think you have to appreciate is left to people in Europe. There is nothing, you can't even get yeah. a triple B credit utility giving you for five years any yield year either.
1: So, Marcus, just sort of just taking a step back and, and tying this together, should we view this German 30 year auction as sort of a shot across the bow that investors will protest and say enough is enough at a certain level? Or is this just an idiosyncrasy of German bond auctions paired with the idea uh, that you know they're just you know there is tepid demand, but that you know this is not going to change anytime soon.
5: I, I think I think you're, you've got the the, the, the tone there on the latter point. I, I think this is a little bit of rejection, a little bit of uh, yield gag in the sense of indigestion coming here that they, you know maybe they don't want to pay up and look stupid paying uh this sort of level nonetheless they'll be back in for it and it is it, you know intrinsically linked to the fact that that in september 25th the european central bank will be announcing yet more qe for uh the rest of europe and including particularly increasingly longer dated bonds in germany these things will get snaffled up slowly but surely uh, this wasn't a great auction um it was it was a step too far just here right now but you've got problems in Italy, you've got a recession in Germany or you know, almost certainly, and they could well spill over to the rest of Europe. And you've got a European Central Bank who wants to not only cut rates, but add again something they stopped at the end of last year, back to restarting QE. Look, this is a, a train of events which almost certainly is going to lead to your yields at some point, and I think these, these bonds will get swallowed up quite happily.
0: Marcus Ashworth, thank you so much. Marcus is a columnist covering European markets for uh, Bloomberg Opinion. You can read more on this and other stories from Bloomberg Opinion at bloomberg.com/opinion and on the terminal by typing OPIN go. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney.
1: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.